Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, hope you're well. Welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, episode 58. So things have been a little bit uh, out of sync uh, in the last week or 10 days uh, for obvious reasons with the funeral, etc. It's always tricky to know what's uh, appropriate to put out and what's not. I just think... um, you've got to use a bit of common sense. Um, I did decide to put out the interview with LBC uh, last Friday because I thought that was very sort of timely in terms of some of the things that were going on in policing. Um, I find that... uh, I really enjoyed the interview with Lewis Goodall, actually. You can listen to that if you just skip back to the previous. It's not actually an episode. I just stuck it in so that people could listen to it. I really enjoyed talking to him because he actually listened uh, he was actually genuinely, I got the feeling he was genuinely interested in some of the issues. Um, it might be a, might have been a little bit stats heavy, um, but I do think the stats that I quoted at him uh, are really, really important uh, to try and sort of contextualise where policing is. And um, for those who don't really understand what's been going on over the last 10 or 12 years, um, I think it's going to be quite an eye-opener. Um, I did. I did notice that he used an expression in his introduction to the interview, where he talked about issues around public safety uh, and policing as being very underreported, uh, which I completely agree with. And my uh, take on that, I suppose, is that the reason it's probably been underreported. I mean, there's been lots of reporting around bad news stories, but the issues, the wider issues around law enforcement and policing have been underreported, I think, for two reasons. One is that the right-wing press have been in cahoots with uh, this government uh, since 2010 um, to kind of effectively do their bidding. Um, And, you know, I've never seen a time where certain newspapers, such as the Daily Mail or the Daily Express, and to a lesser extent, the Daily Telegraph, I suppose, are unambiguously coming out and trotting out the standard Tory line of the day. So there's no sense whatsoever, any independence whatsoever. So the the lack of um, scrutiny by the right-wing press has contributed to that. And also the left-leaning press has historically been quite um, sceptical about policing generally. So... Um, it's very hard 
um, for those papers like The Guardian or The Independent to break out of their, I'm going to use a really wanky expression here, swim lane. So they, they are very comfortable uh, in that sort of broadly sceptical position around policing. And I think there are very few uh, left-leaning journalists who are comfortable about speaking up in support of policing. So that leaves policing in a very um, precarious position, I suppose. But broadly speaking, I think it was a very, um, I think it was very fair and I was able to get my points across reasonably successfully. Oh, but it is stressful doing those. Bloody hell, it's stressful. The, the adrenaline, um, uh, you can feel the adrenaline sort of going through your system for many hours afterwards and, um, yeah, I don't particularly enjoy them, but I do think it's important. Um, right, so this week uh, I'm going to be speaking to Maggie Oliver. Now, some of you will be very familiar with who she is, but for those who aren't, Maggie Oliver was a detective in Greater Manchester Police for many years. Um, she became um, very well known as a result of her turning whistleblower uh, against the senior management of Greater Manchester Police. Uh, specifically in respect of um, the child sexual exploitation that was exposed in places like Rochdale over many years involving large gangs of predominantly um, Pakistani Muslim Asian men. Um, and uh, she went head to head with the force over quite a long period of time um, and um, she will describe uh, the way that she was treated, which was pretty poor. Um, she's since gone on to found the uh, Maggie Oliver Foundation, which is a organisation she will describe about how it supports uh, victims of that type of sexual offending um, anywhere in the UK and also uh, works very closely with other agencies, including the police and other non-statutory agencies to bring their sort of expertise to bear on all of that so I really enjoyed talking to Maggie she's a real force of nature and um, yeah she's a, just a great example of someone who just refused to lie down and be ignored and uh, yeah there's not enough of that in, in my view going on in and what has gone on in policing over the last sort of 15-20 years and um, yeah, when you make when you put a target on your back, when one makes well, one puts a target on one's back in an organisation like the police, uh, life can very quickly become extremely uncomfortable. So, uh, so yeah, great to hear her story. Right, we'll get straight into the interview. Hi, Maggie. Listen. Um, Lovely to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? You all right? I'm good, thanks, Ian. Yeah, nice to be here. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, so I've, I've already spoken to someone who used Shay Doyle. I had him on the podcast previously. I pre believe you used to know him back in GMP. Is that right? Yeah, I've got to know him more, actually, since we both left GMP. But yeah, I did actually work on the same syndicate as Shay uh, when we were both in the major incident team. All so, right. Yeah, good guy. Um, had a bit of a a rough ride, I think, and a raw deal. But hey ho, join the club. <laughs> well, exactly. I was just about to say you're he's in you both. You're in both in good company there, aren't you? There's uh, yeah. there's there's a few yeah. people 
have been down that road, haven't they, over the years? But um, so listen, I'm really pleased to have you on um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, obviously, uh, you've had a fascinating, fascinating police career. You've done some really brilliant stuff since leaving the police. Um, you know, involved in some really high profile, um, serious investigations, uh, which arguably changed the way that um, the police and other agencies respond to child sexual exploitation. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I talk about in my book, I was the, I was the national project manager for the, the national CSE action plan, working for right. Simon Bailey, who at that time was the, until recently, you know, only retired quite recently, I was the chief constable of Norfolk, wasn't he? So, so yeah, so um, we've got a lot in common, uh, I think. And subsequently the, uh, the lead for Operation Hydrant, you, you, you know, right. which is uh, supposed to be the national lead for dealing with child exploitation, with sexual exploitation and that. Yeah. Um, it's now gone. So yeah, there's another yeah. place. <laughs> it's a very, very big shoes to step into whoever's had to take take that job on. So, so yeah, so what, I suppose what, I, what I'd be really interested in doing um, for the purposes of the podcast today, it would be um, have a chat about uh, you and your background before you joined the police. Um, what you, uh, why you joined in the first place, you know, what, what sort of propelled you into the job um, back in the sort of right in the very first days. Um, talk a little bit about your career, what you did, you know, before you got involved in all of the stuff that you're kind of well known for. Um, and then we can talk a bit about that as well, you know, talk about yeah. Roch, Roch, Rochdale and your experiences and, um, yeah, and what you've been doing since that with the Maggie Oliver Foundation. So if you're, yeah, if you're happy with oh, that. Yeah, um, how long have you got? Well, <laughs> I know it's, it's tired, tricky, there's a lot it? of background yes. there. But I know, I know, but uh, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll be selective, eh? Um, but, uh, <laughs> I'll so we'll... get through it, you know, and um, just give you the, the, the picture postcard, the, the postage stamp, not picture postcard, the yeah, postage yeah. stamp version and actually I've had, I've just brought my book because if somebody does want to know the full ins and outs they right can... Maggie Oliver survivors fighting for justice yeah right so that so... that's about my work but also about my life and you can get it on Amazon but really I, I explain in there that um I was married I had four children um I went back to university at the age of 37 full-time did a full-time degree because I was going to teach and then in my final year, I kind of thought, mm, do I, you know, do I really want to do that? And what if I don't get in? So I applied for GMP, Greater Manchester Police as well. I got in both and I decided to go into the police for my sins um, and try and make a difference. Yeah. And originally my thoughts were that I would go into child protection because I was, mm -hmm. you know, bringing up my own kids. I love children and yeah. I've got a very good um some would say overdeveloped sense of what is right and wrong and justice and all that yeah. um, and you know I got in um so just to pause you there that's quite a big step isn't it at that stage in your life so you've got four kids how old were your yeah. kids at that time my youngest was just eight I, I I had four under seven at one point I think there were eight oh my god ten. 13 and 15 I think something like that oh, and um so it, it was a massive 
it actually was a massive shock to my system. Um, and I was posted uh, unbelievably into the middle of Moss Side, which was gangs and guns and mm -hmm. drugs and within the 90s. And so, you know, it was a real baptism of fire. And, yeah. and I have to say that, you know, I was the odd one out in many ways. I'm you know, sure there you were. Because there would yeah, have been, were... in the, back in those days, there weren't many people um, joining at that stage of life, were there? I mean, occasionally yeah. you'd get the odd person here and there. But generally, yeah. most people join in their sort of early 20s, probably, don't they? Yeah. And, you, you know, we had quite a few guys who joined on my, well, later because they'd been in the armed forces. Right. Um, and they would come in, they'd, you know, re retire at, say, 37, 38 and come into another uniform service. But mm -hmm. I don't think there was another woman um, within 15 years of my age when I joined. Really? So, re you know, it really was a challenge. But, I, you know, I like challenges. <laughs> did you find yourself, I don't want to stereotype you, but given that you had four kids of your own, did you find yourself mothering some of the younger ones a little bit? Yeah, I, I had a very, I would say... I would say that I represented what many people wanted from the police. Right. And I do believe that you need to have life experience, particularly when you're dealing with, um, you know, vulnerable people. Mm. Um, because, you, you know, you know, as a police officer, you can change somebody's life with your actions. Mm. But I always say sometimes it doesn't take a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Mm. And, you know, how you dealt with those cases. I mean, I go into some examples in my book of, you know, I remember one one job uh, when I was in my probation. Uh, obviously, you have to do uniform, as you know. Um, and I did find it a struggle. And I did have a sergeant that absolutely believed before he even met me that I shouldn't be in the police. You know, I was really? too old. Yeah, middle class, middle aged, do good. Uh, no, I shouldn't be there. And he made my life hell, if I'm honest. Really? And um, that, that's a story in itself. But I remember being sent to a job in um, in the big in the big Asda in in Hume, and uh, I was sent to a shoplifting. And when I got there, there's these four little kids who had eaten a sausage roll going round Asda. <laughs> I think they were eleven years old. Yeah. Um, they had a policy that you arrest every shoplifter. But I just made the decision, and I was in my probation, that, you know, if the public knew you were going to get four van crews, four appropriate adults, four solicitors, all that time, I just mm. said to us, get the mothers in, and they can pay for the sausage roll. I gave the kids a ticking off, I give them a roasting. Um, I nearly lost my job for that, really? because the policy was that you prosecute shoplifters. And I said, you know what? It's ridiculous. Yeah. So I always had a slightly different, and I wasn't frightened to hold my ground. Um, that doesn't mean to say I wouldn't do as I was told. Well, I you would. were old. You were a bit older, and you're more confident, yeah. I suppose, weren't you? And this yeah. is where this is where they're talking about bringing back all sorts of. I mean, I I think don't get me wrong. I think um, you know the way that crime has been dealt with at the moment is shockingly poor. Um, but the danger, of course, is that we go completely, this is what the police tend to do all the time, they completely go 180 degrees the other way, don't they? And then before you know it, they're prosecuting everything, you know? Yeah. And, and there has, to, only. There has to be, only. I know, there has to be some discretion in there. There has to be, hasn't there? Yeah, I think common sense is what mm. is missing often mm. um because you can do something doesn't mean to say that you should do and the way we are in this country today you know you report a burglary 
victims are coming to the foundation all the time who were being pushed away at the first hurdle. You know, child abuse isn't being prosecuted. Rape is almost decriminalised. And, and I often look at what's going on and I hear what's going on through my work every single day. And we're becoming a country that only polices what I call the low-lying fruit. Mm. So it's dead easy to prosecute somebody speaking on a mobile phone in a car. Yes. Not as easy to prosecute a member of a gang of 20 or 30 paedophiles who are so sophisticated that you can't even prove who they are. And whilst I, and I'm not blaming individual police officers all the time, I am blaming the people at the top. Because if chief constables are saying, um, you know, we're doing a great job and we're doing this right, they should be shouting out from the treetops saying we don't have resources, we aren't properly um, finance. We aren't funded yeah. properly. We are not delivering a public service that is fit for purpose. And yeah. their job for me is mm. to shout to the Home Office, to the Home Secretary, and tell them how it is. We all know yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. the criminal justice system. And I'm, I'm not anti, I am pro-justice. Yeah, but that's so, because that, that's because it would threaten their careers, wouldn't it? You know, they, yeah. that's, that's, and I've made that point again and again, is that the, yeah. the, cop, the cops on the front line, uh, federated ranks, uh, and even the Superintendents Association have been pretty good at calling all this stuff out, haven't they? But but there's been complete silence from chief constables, hasn't there? And that really is a big part of what my role is, you know, mm. because I am hearing these examples now of, of cases every day. And my job is to be kind of a conduit for them voices, because yeah. these are happening today. They are facts. They are uh, truthful. Um, and really all I can do is share my knowledge from mm. the horse's mouth yeah. with those who are in a position to make a difference. Because if we don't do that, you know, we are becoming a, a country that really doesn't have a criminal justice system that is fit for purpose. And that yeah. is tragic. I know. Well, um, it's letting everyone down, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, Ian. And uh, so, going know, back uh, to your yeah. early days, then in in uh, in Manchester, um, uh, obviously you spent your sort of usual time period of time in uniform, as as we all did. Yeah. Um, and then it it seems like you moved more into a sort of an investigative role. So, um, so talk me talk talk yeah. talk about that a little bit. So, what was it? What was it particularly that sort of attracted that uh, attracted you to that side of things? Um, actually, while I was in my probation, I was given um, a secondment into child protection. Mm. And I think going in there, I realised very quickly that as a police officer in child protection, you were really um, not dealing with the victims. You were really dealing with the offenders. And my natural skills and abilities were with vulnerable people, were with victims, with witnesses, with... Um, so I, as I got out of my probation, it, it happened really, I think it was meant to be really, but I got called in. I'd only just come out of my probation and the super in, in, in Moss Side called me in and said that we had um, um, a very, very serious gang related um, murder and the force witness protection would relocate part of the family. But there was another five members of the family that the force uh, whip pro wouldn't take on would I relocate them now I had no mm. training but I said well yeah you know I've got a family of my own with you know I've got common sense absolutely and I loved it so mm. I worked with um it, it wasn't the major incident team then it was 
the fourth major incident team. And there were all detectives, experienced detectives. Um, I was right in the thick of it all and I absolutely loved it. Um, and that led to me almost immediately becoming a family liaison officer a family liaison officer um, and from that day really I never went back well I never went back into uniform and I worked on a series of murders uh, shootings kidnappings I did other witness protection jobs um, and, and really you know I went into families as well as being an investigator yeah. and that's a really good example isn't it of how I, I, I make this point all the time and this is something that the media I don't think understand at all is that the police is a broad church, isn't it? And it needs all sorts of different types of people, doesn't it? And everyone, I think, um, if they if they want to, um, and they put themselves uh, in the right place, and maybe a little bit of luck as well. But there's a, there's there's a job for everyone, isn't there? And um, square pegs and square holes. And you were clearly a square peg in a square hole there, weren't you? Yeah, you know what, Ian, you, you've really hit the nail on the head because I felt it was ridiculous when I joined. You know, I'm a 41-year-old woman. Yes, I was fit, and yes, I did the physical. But, you know, they made me do all my riot training and, you know, um, things that, you know, you I, I had no interest in doing. And, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm useless with technology. You wouldn't put me on CCTV, but you give me a vulnerable person or you give me a member of the public that needs to trust somebody. There is, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but there was nobody better than me. Well, my super there, um, really good guy actually called Andy Holt, had been ex-forces. He had uh, he actually supported me in my probation when I was actually going to leave. I was going to I was on the verge of resigning, but he stood my corner um, and he saw my my natural abilities and he knew that the police could use those for a little bit like Shay. Because mm. Shay went into the police, they spotted in him um, something that would mean that he would be a fantastic undercover cop, mm. you know? Mm. And, yeah. and that was about his natural skills and abilities. Mine yeah. were completely different than Shay's, but I yeah. had them and I still do. So Andy Holt spotted that in me and, and he opened up a, a career that I, I absolutely loved. Mm. Um, and I do think that there is a lack of creativity amongst um police management if you like mm. that insist on putting the wrong people in the wrong job because they're a resource i yeah. mean on operation span for instance and i know i'm jumping ahead but it's Sorry. relevant to this yeah. um we uh, that was a job where we were dealing with dozens of the most vulnerable children yeah. and because um they had just closed down a computer crime unit and all the staff from that unit had nowhere to go. So they lifted all those staff and they put them on a job dealing with the most vulnerable children. Now, you could argue that those techies really didn't like people. That's why they were working yeah. in tech. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Yet, they've never spoken to a kid in their life. Yeah. Now, that for me is just using them as a resource. They're not looking at the outcomes or the successes of the job. And yeah. unfortunately, that mentality prevails. And there the rank system and the arrogance that I find amongst senior officers is, mm. is, is pitiful, really. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, in any other business or, you know, my foundation in the charity, we don't have um, we, we don't have managers. We are mm. a team. Yeah. And I say to everybody, look, 10 heads are better than one. 20 are better than one. Yeah. And if we all throw our ideas in we're going to come out with the best outcome. Yeah. Um, and, and I would like to see that kind of mentality 
um, begin to thrive in policing because I think really that is part of what the problem is. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I'm I'm working with a, a small company at, at the moment. Um, there's there's about five or six of us, and um, and it's exactly the same as that. There's no one's in charge. We're all respect each other's experiences and and our contribution. And yeah. you know, one of the guys uh, is it was a DC. I, you know, I was a superintendent. I respect him. He respects me. There's there's no kind of you know, no. it's, it's so lovely being in an environment now where, you know, as you know, in policing, there is that sort of mentality that everyone has to listen to the most senior person in the room, even if they're talking complete shit. And, yeah, um... it's nonsense. <laughs> it, you know, you know, I had some real, you know, pardon my language, but proper dicks yeah. who wouldn't. And, you know, they had an attitude or what they used to call it was um, um, a hypothesis. Mm. I remember one murder I worked on. The boss had a hypothesis and nobody else was uh, listened to at all. Mm. And, and in the end, people stopped talking, stopped contributing because yeah. you you there's have no to. Po- there's no point. There's, there's no point. And you get your best outcomes when you have a team that mm. works together. And, um, and And that is really where. I saw a lot of the problems, um, mm. but I also had some brilliant um, bosses, you know, yeah. and, every, you, you know, as an ex-cop, you know, everybody knows who those bosses are. Yeah. And they are the teams that you want to be on. Um, yeah. Because well, they're the ones, they're the people who all they care about really is is getting a, a good result. And they also care about um, everybody coming to work and being happy and having fun and enjoying yeah. themselves and all of that kind of stuff, making yeah. the workplace an enjoyable place to be, you know, 100%. As, opposed, as opposed to you will do what I say you do, you know, because of this, yeah. this kind of crown yeah. on my shoulder or, or whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. but um, I agree. So just, I think um, it's a really antiquated um, mentality, really. I think it's outdated and yeah, we need, definitely. We need to move on from it, well, you know. Well, you know, the results, I mean, I appreciate austerity um, and the government have got a lot to answer for in terms yeah. of what's the way the police looks at the moment. But I do think, that, um, you know, I, I talk about that's half the problem. I think the other half of the problem is is some very um, weird, um, you know, uh, things that are, have gone on in policing for far too long now, and yeah. particularly around the promotion system and promoting yeah. people who are basically just a complete bullshitters and yeah uh, instead of sacking them they promote them up to get rid yeah. of them and you end up with you know um uh, you know incompetent people who were uh, leading a team and and destroying uh, the natural uh, enthusiasm because i think every police officer starts off wanting to make a difference you know we we promise to uphold the law to act with mm. impartiality to um, uphold fundamental human rights all those things I really believed in when when mm. I that's what I wanted to do that's what I promised to do mm. and I think everybody who goes in begins off starts off believing that and mm. I think they get it you know in a way bullied out of them and mm. in the end they become frightened of ste- stepping out of that safety circle yeah, and they just yeah. come to work like was said to me come to work put your bum on a seat get your wage and go home mm, um, right. and that is a crying shame it, it really is so let's talk about um your first um involvement in what came to be known as CSE child sexual exploitation um 
where, where were you at that time and what job were you doing? It was actually in 2004. Um, my, I, I was in the CID then. I was also a family liaison officer. And my husband that I'd been with for nearly 30 years uh, was diagnosed terminally ill with bowel cancer. And it was at the same time that a young girl um, called Victoria Agolia um, had been found dead. Um, nobody was charged with murder, but she had been given an overdose in Rochdale. Um, and she had been um, sexually abused. She'd been exploited. I was asked to join a very small team initially um, to look at whether Manchester had a problem with, with grooming and, and CSE. That was the very first time that I became aware of this particular kind of crime, which is now referred to as grooming gangs. Mm. Um, what I didn't know at the time, and with hindsight, I believe that, that job became known as Operation Augusta. Um, mm. What I didn't know at the time was um, a, a Channel 4 programme called Dispatches mm. had been looking into um, they've been following a social services team in in and around um, Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, um, and in Keithley they discovered this particular kind of offending with predominantly Pakistani men uh, grooming and sexually abusing uh, very vulnerable white girls. Mm. They'd filmed it and it was due to be going out um, and there was there was like an um, uproar about it because the local elections were coming and they thought that it would affect the outcome. Mm. And it, at almost exactly the same time, Victoria Agolia died. I now believe with hindsight that GMP, and it was these decisions were made at gold group level. So mm. chief mm. constable, assistant chief constable, head of crime, all these people. Um, I believe that they put together Operation Augusta so that when, as they believed, the shit hit the fan, and the spotlight came on GMP, they could say that we were looking at this problem to see whether we had a similar problem. Mm. So I went on that job and within, within you know, a couple of weeks, we had already identified dozens of children that social workers had been desperately trying to get GMP um, to um, protect, to um, prosecute their abusers. But the problem was in those days, and as you, you will know, child protection units only dealt with abuse that was uh, by somebody who had care, custody or control mm. of the child that they abused. These men were strangers. They, did, yeah. you know, they didn't have care. They weren't family members. They weren't uh, teachers or sports coaches or anything. So it didn't fall within the remit of a child protection unit. Yeah. So it fell within CID and CID detectives saw these oh, police in general saw these kids as a nuisance. Mm. They felt that they were asking for it. They were making that phrase a lifestyle choice, that yeah. they weren't being raped. They were complicit in their yeah. abuse. And because of that, these crimes were just pushed away and they fell between um, they fell between the boards. But um, we the, the small team at Augusta, um, we found that it was a, a really big problem 
this was not in Rochdale, though. She had died in Rochdale. But we were asked to look at Manchester City Centre all along the Curry Mile. And we called it the Sea Division, Longside and Side and Withenshaw. And we very quickly identified dozens of children. Um, the team uh, increased a little bit. And then we did a, a report. And I took it to the head of crime uh, with an appeal that we needed more resources um, and we needed a full major incident team to deal with this case. That was um, granted. We were given uh, the manpower and all we'd been on that job then for about a year. And all the evidence that we'd gathered in that year had to be what's called back record converted and put mm. onto the home system. Mm. Um, and obviously that sort of stalled the because mm. we had a mountain of information. We had nearly 100 men. I think we had 97 men that we had identified as being the abusers. Mm. Uh, almost within three months of, of um, them beginning that process, um, I had to go off work to um, look after my husband and his last couple of months of his life. But I went off work, Ian, feeling that that job was a complete runner. We had the evidence, we knew who was doing it, we had the victims, we had the social workers. I came back to work a couple of months after Norman died to find that that job had been completely buried. Not one man had been charged with rape or sexual abuse. And, and I was just in total shock. Well, you were dealing with a, a almost like a, I mean, obviously your, the main bereavement of losing your husband is 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 terrible. Yeah. And, 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 you know, even, even coming back to work at all, no matter how good work was going to be, must have been really, really hard, I imagine. Um, but then to come back and find that that thing that you'd been so invested in um, had just sort of, you know, crashed and burned must have been like a double whammy, really. It, it, I mean, I was in, in um, I was in a really bad place. You know, I'd been mm. I'd been with Norman since I was 20. And, you know, I, our youngest child was still at school. I had one doing GCSEs. I had my daughter doing A-levels. Um, and I wasn't in a good place myself, understandably. Mm. But mm. when I came back, I had no paperwork because everything had been at work. I came back, but I knew in my heart, because I had spoken, to, I had been on the front line. I knew what was going on. And mm. I tried to get answers. I went to, you know, I went to the SIO. I went to different people. All I could get was that there was insufficient evidence, which I knew was a lie. I knew that that was wrong. But I think it's worth mentioning that I know now, I didn't know at the time, but that the um, the London bombings, my husband died on the 5th of July, 2005. The London bombings were on the 7th of July, mm -hmm. 2005. The very last entry on that database for Operation Augusta was on the night of the 6th of July. Mm. Now, I find that too big of a coincidence to ignore. That mm. job never moved another muscle from that day. Mm. So, so what's your, what's your um, assessment of, or what's your sort of suspicion as to why that would be the case? Do you think it was the fact that everybody just, uh, the 7-7 incident was such a, you know, a shocking, catastrophic attack resulting in the loss of so many lives do you think that was a resource issue that a lot of detectives then got sucked into kind of kind of terrorism or what what's your what what's your now, assessment of it, that then my belief now is that there was such a fear of islamophobia 
and we knew the ethnicity of the perpetrators. Right. Um, that was a big part of the decision making. Right. I also believe that the spotlight, that the programme about Keithley and about the grooming gang there had been transmitted. There hadn't been the massive public outcry that had been anticipated. And because we hadn't gone into the live investigation mode, we hadn't, we'd actually interviewed uh, one of the children, but we weren't, you know, we had all the, the, the TIEs and all the actions were being raised. But to close the job down at that point, there wouldn't be as much, uh, there wouldn't really, other than the people working on that job, nobody mm. knew it existed. Yeah. But I think it's worth saying that I never shut up about that job. Mm. Um, it was always in my heart. I never yeah. forgot about it. And when I finally resigned from the police in 2012, and I worked as the programme consultant on the drama Three Girls and the documentary The Betrayed Girls, The Betrayed Girls talks all about Operation Augusta. Mm. Um, I went, I was always on the on the media, you know, on the TV, on the radio, and talking about Operation Augusta and how that mm. job had been buried. And mm. Andy Burnham, who's the mayor, he heard me um, on in the media keep saying this, and I think he probably thought I was telling lies mm. um, because I was very vocal about it. So he put together, he announced that he was going to put together an independent review team to look into Operation Augusta and Operation Spanning Rochdale, because this was after that. Mm. Um, it's now ended up um, including Oldham. But the Operation Augusta part of that review reported in January 2020. There mm. is a, a document like that. And the official reasoning in that independent review for why Operation Augusta was closed down is because GMP decided they were not willing to put resources into it. Mm. So that's the official and the official line. Um, the senior officers running that job, I think there were five of them, including the assistant chief constables, were all referred to the IOPC. Mm. But the chief constable was Mike Todd and mm. he committed suicide. Mm. Um, so he wasn't there. And the 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 minutes of the meeting where that decision was made had mm. quite conveniently gone missing. Mm. So they couldn't pin that decision on, on any person. Mm. The officers named refused to be interviewed by the IOPC. And it was announced about a month ago that there will be no further action. Well, for me, that is gross criminal neglect. It is misconduct mm. in a public office. GMP were forced to reopen Operation Augusta. It is now running as Operation Green Jacket. Mm. And the, the starting point was where they closed Augusta down. And they've reapproached many of the victims that we had identified in 2005, who were now mm. adults. Mm. Um, but those hundred men that we knew then were abusing children were left to abuse more children for another 15 years. And for me, that is just unforgivable. Yeah. So it's that worth it's worth possibly it's worth possibly just pausing, just to talk about what what this type of um, criminal activity, what it actually looks and feels like for for both victims and for law enforcement. Bearing in mind that people listen to this from literally all over the world, and and whilst I understand exactly what you're talking about, and you know, and I've worked on these jobs myself. It's probably worth just sort of for those who, who don't really understand what this is all about. Just for, so so I'll describe what I, what what I think that sort of um, 
type of offending looks like and if I miss anything like you can fill in the gaps yeah so so my as when I was a so my first experience of this was when I was a DI running a child abuse investigation team in Birmingham back in what 2007-8 and and we started noticing a very strong link between uh, young girls uh, predominantly girls um from usually care homes who had led a very dysfunctional chaotic life um, in and out of the care system probably most of their lives um, most of them sort of between the ages of about maybe 13 and 15 um, frequently going missing uh, from care homes and um, uh, care homes themselves making little or no effort to actually try and find out where they were going um, and then it would become clear that they would then be found. Uh, they would either come back to the care home maybe two or three days later of their own volition, um, usually suffering from high levels of intoxication, um, very uh, dirty and unkempt. Uh, and they would generally uh, come back, get some food, maybe have a shower, and then they would go missing again. Um, and that was the typical kind of um, pattern of behaviour. Um, as time went on, we we uh, began to realise that they were generally being picked up in the vicinity of those care homes by uh, uh, one or more um, Pakistani Asian men from the local community, and it was particularly this type of offending was particularly um, common in those parts of Birmingham where there was, was high levels of uh, Pakistani Muslim men. Um, uh, they would be taken off in a car, uh, generally speaking, um, then given small gifts um, or uh, sort of cannabis or vodka, or alcohol, or whatever. And uh, we were getting absolutely no disclosures whatsoever from the girls of anything going on. Um, and for that reason, it was very, very difficult to really build up an intelligence picture as to what was happening. But then as time went on, we would realize that what was happening was that these girls were being introduced to uh, other, they, they would actually, these girls would actually see these men, uh, the, young, the younger Asian men as their boyfriends. Um, but then obviously those younger Asian men would then introduce them to older Asian men and they would have uh, what are euphemistically termed parties in a grotty uh, low budget hotel room somewhere or in a um, crappy semi-derelict house where the girls were basically used and abused sexually by multiple men over maybe two or three days. So that's my, that's my 101 on child yeah. sexual exploitation. I, I think quite a lot of what you said is right mm. and Operation Augusta was children in care mm. um, Operation Span in Rochdale five years later was not children in care right. but they were children from difficult homes so maybe one parent families maybe extremely vulnerable they had no attention they um, didn't really have a stable home life Augusta I mean, I, I, it makes me really angry 
when people refer to the care system because the care system does not care. It is mm. not fit for purpose. Mm. And, you know, your explanation there focuses entirely on the children. Mm. Th these are children. Mm. Mm. Um, and and I, I would disagree to an extent that all these girls, all these children, would not talk about what had happened because mm. on Augusta and on Span, quite a lot of those children would, if they were approached and nurtured yeah, yeah, yeah. and cared yeah. for in the right way. One of the major problems in these cases is that a police officer will go in, say, just say we, 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 we look at a care home situation. Those children go missing pretty much every week. And the mm. care home staff will pick the phone up. Oh, God, Dolly's gone missing again. Yeah, she's a nuisance. Put the phone down. That's their duty done. Mm. The police officer picking up that missing from home report will go into the home. They're there every weekend. They'll get a brew. They'll fill it in. They don't view that child as vulnerable, missing, mm. and actually don't really give a shit. Mm. So nobody looks for that child. The child comes back. They don't feel cared for. They are abandoned, neglected. They are. Mm. Um, they they don't have any affection or love, and that's mm. what makes them vulnerable. And that's yeah. why the younger men will befriend them, mm. but they're befriending them so that they can traffic them and rape them and pass them round gangs of men for which they get paid. And I, I always say that you know a heroin dealer can sell a bag of heroin once. That's it. It's used. Mm. It's gone. They've got to get more heroin. With a child, they can sell that child every day. It is a very lucrative income for these gangs. And for me, the responsibility of the of the protective agencies is to focus on the abusers and find a way, because it isn't impossible. It is, mm. I fully accept these cases are really difficult cases, but you need people. You need police officers like me. Mm. who have got children, who the kids can identify with, who can build up communication, gain their trust. And if you do that, that is what they are crying out for. They need to be mm. kept secure, kept safe. Yeah. So I... I yeah, know, no, I... So I, you yeah, know, you're absolutely right. And I, I, was, I was conscious of, of kind of trying to paint the picture I, in, I, a, in a very, in, very sort of yeah. cl clumsy kind of way. And you're absolutely right is that um you know very often they will be if 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 they're dealt with by someone who has actually got to take the time to speak yeah. to them properly and build a rapport with them build trust yeah. and all of that sort of stuff they definitely so i mean but just to sort of just sort of paint the picture from where people like me were sitting i suppose back in those days i mean today it's 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 so different I think I think thank god it is well you know I I would not really agree with that because really? my work the Maggie Oliver Foundation that that is what chief constables say every time there is another report these are these are problems of the past we have moved on a long way from them and um, what I would say if there's one thing that I take credit for it is that now the country understands grooming mm. Mm. They know it is going on. Yeah. The authorities would still have the public believe that things now are great. But I can tell you that we are dealing with dozens of cases from police forces 
all around the country where victims are coming yeah. to us saying they are being ignored today. Yeah. We've got 33 live cases with GMP right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and there, so there, maybe, there so maybe, a, maybe a more appropriate comment there from me would have been, I think our awareness yeah. and our understanding yeah. of the problem is a lot better. But, yeah. the, but the reality is that it's as CSE um, offending now is, is likely to get just as poor a service as it seems yeah. every other type of offending in, yeah. in the UK. And that includes yeah. and you burglary, know, theft. Yeah. Every, everything's That's getting what, a crap service, isn't it? It is. And because it's not prioritised. I mean, even last week in Parliament, there was a debate on grooming gangs because they're called grooming gangs. They're not, they're rape, the the, the child rapists. Mm. I think there were six MPs that turned up. Mm. Now that is shocking. And yet you only had to look at them, you know, the other night when the when they had the Queen, uh, the King being what they call it, sworn in. Yeah. That room was packed. And that mm. shows where their priorities like they would they'll make the effort to go there but they won't make the effort for these children who have nobody else fighting their corner. That's why the work of the foundation is so important. You know, when I resigned, Ian, and um, and I, it, it, it made me, it was the worst two, even though I'd lost my husband and I lost my little granddaughter before she was three, the two years when I was fighting as a serving police officer to be heard about what they were doing the second time in Rochdale on Operation Span, I went to the chief, you know, I went to the head of public protection. I went to the head of serious crime. I went to the chief constable, the home office, the children's commissioner, as a serving police officer. Mm. Nobody wanted to hear. I ended up unconscious on the floor. I lost my home. And my, I, I didn't know which way to so what, turn. What year, what year are we talking about here, Maggie? That was 2012. Well, well it was 2011 when I began to, when when my eyes opened, when I saw the same things happening on Operation Span as I'd seen in 2005 on Augusta. And I'd been headhunted for Operation Span for partic- to bring particular children on board because mm-hmm. the abuse in that case was no longer happening. It, it had finished two years before, but mm. we had um, w- the way it happened was um, there was a routine property review done in GMP and they discovered a fetus in one of the freezers. Um, now, that fetus had been seized, I would say, unlawfully from um, a 13. She was just 13, a 13 year old child with special needs who had been raped from the age of 12 uh, that had become pregnant by her abuser. Um, and had had a termination. Now, she wasn't told that they were going to seize the fetus. Permission wasn't sought. Her her mum wasn't spoken to or asked. The family didn't even know that we had that. And when that came to light, I was brought in and said, look, can you go and speak to this uh, family? Um, And can you get them to give permission for us to get DNA from this fetus? So that we, because they'd set up Operation Span. so I did that, and to their everlasting credit, with no reason to help, they did help. The sister had already been arrested as a 15-year-old child who was being raped again on suspicion of being a madam. 
and I was asked to go and get her back on side so that she would tell us what had happened to her, which again, she did eight months of interviews, ID parades, identified her rapist, uh, showed us all the locations, gave a list of phone numbers. And, and then eight months down the road, I get called in one day and they've changed their mind. They're not going to use this girl. But that was the final nail in the coffin for me. And, and so I believed at that time, Ian, that it was one lazy officer who was, they weren't running that job, but in effect, they were. I, that's how naive I was. But I didn't, I'm a very loyal person. I didn't want to cause problems for my colleagues. Mm. Um, but then I had a conversation that basically with the SIO that said they knew what I was saying was right. Um, they agreed with it, but the decisions were beyond my rank, beyond my pay, my pay rate. Um, and I should just, you know, leave those decisions to the senior officers. I and the words were, you come to where put your bum on a seat, do your job and go home. Leave these decisions to the, the big guys. Well, I couldn't do that because mm. this was the second time that I had seen children. If it had been, you know what, if it had been theft from motor vehicle or even burglaries, mm. I wouldn't have resigned. Yeah. But for me, once I'd exhausted everything internally and I'd gone to the Home Office and I'd gone everywhere, I went to the IOPC I put a grievance in, I went to a solicitor, I went to my federation, nobody wanted to know. So the only thing I could do was um, go public. And I was threatened uh, both verbally and in writing, the suggestion being that if I spoke out, I would go to prison. And, and I truly believed and that And who I was would telling you that? The, the head of um, major crime. Um, when I was saying, this is what's going on, it was... You know, you'd be very, very careful what you say. All the information that you have, you know, because you are a serving police officer and this is confidential. And I said, I want to make a protective disclosure in the public interest. I'd mm. never done anything like this in my yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I went to the Federation who initially referred me through to a, an independent legal firm. Um, I went to see the uh, solicitor there told them all the facts and what was going on and they were as shocked as I was they said right bring the evidence back you must put a grievance in or it's not officially recorded um, mm. and we will take it from there when I went back to the police federation it, I, I was like persona non grata they wouldn't they would not support me anymore they wanted me then to give all my evidence to the internal false solicitor to look at and I said no you know, I've been trying to be heard within the organisation for the past eight months. Mm. You've sent me outside to a solicitor that you have recommended. Mm. I want to go back and see them and they, they wouldn't support me to go back. I ended up then um, un unconscious at work. I, I was just so ill. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat. And it made me, I felt sick to my stomach. But something inside me would not let this go. I knew that it was wrong. I knew I didn't want my kids turning the telly on in 30 years time when mm. I'm not here. And suddenly all over the TV is Rochdale grooming scandal. You know, it was even even the chief constable now, 10 years on, I took those two girls and another girl to meet him in April, the uh, new chief constable. And he gave each of them a letter um, apologising, acknowledging that they were victims. Um, even the girl who had been arrested 
as a madam, she was secretly added to the indictment as one of the gang of paedophiles. She was never arrested. She was never informed. She was never given a solicitor. She didn't know what was being said about her. She had no opportunity to defend herself. The chief constable has now admitted that GMP were guilty of incompetence in dealing with that job. That's been a 10-year fight to have that acknowledgement. So I feel what it did was right. Yeah, well, it hundred well, percent. But it shouldn't have taken 10 years yeah, in. Yeah, and yeah, it destroyed yeah. those girls' lives yeah. and countless other lives. Yeah. Um, the, the, the independent review has yet to publish on Operation Span, but anybody who's interested should watch, uh, read my book. Three girls should watch it, but it, it is a drama. It doesn't go nearly far enough. Yeah. That's why I wrote my book. Yeah. Um, but the, what the authorities did, as I said before, is unforgivable. And they have done everything within their power to cover up that truth, that yeah. reality. And they still do on many of the cases that we are dealing with. So the Maggie Oliver Foundation now, um, we are there to support victims and survivors. So whether they need emotional support or whether they need legal advocacy, we can help them navigate a process. You know, there are, they do have a victim's right to review. We can go to the IOPC. They do have things at their disposal if they believe that they are being um, let down and silenced. And and that is, yeah. the reality is, Ian. So we'll talk, talk about the foundation a little bit more in a, in, a, in a minute. But just to go back to, um, just to maybe help people understand what the culture of policing was like at that time. So going back to the time when I said I was running the child abuse unit, um, and we were seeing a lot of this. But I suppose there was a couple of there's a couple of things really. So firstly, there's an administrative thing there that the Home Office, um, the way that crime gets recorded and then investigated, uh, is is on. I would say, uh, putting it mildly, is unhelpful. For things like CSE as it was in those days because the, the the brutal fact is unless a crime was reported to the police the police just didn't investigate did they so and and 99 times out of 100 in these cases no one was coming yeah. to the police and saying yeah. I've been raped or yeah. because because they're vulnerable they don't see the police particularly as their friend They've, yeah. got, they've got misplaced sense of loyalty towards their abusers. All of these different things conspire to create a situation where they don't tell the police what's happening. And the police, uh, so there were police managers, as you know, in those days, who would say, where's the, where's the crime report? Where's the crime report? Well, well, actually, you're missing the point there. There is no crime report because X, yeah. Y, Z, all the things I've just described. And their, their attitude was, well, if there's no crime report, there's no crime, is there? So... Um, let's just move you, on. You know what? You know what I call that, Ian. I call it willful blindness. Mm. No, don't lift that carpet because you know what's under it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody yeah. knew. Yeah. Everybody knew, but nobody wanted to yeah. lift that carpet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I, I, I'm just saying very briefly now. I didn't know at the time, but I now know that in 2008, the government, the Home Office, sent out a circular to all police forces telling them not to investigate these case, kinds of crimes because the children were making a lifestyle choice. Now, mm -hmm. I didn't know that until a long time after I resigned. But when that comes from the top, mm -hmm. 
then yeah. you yeah. are never going to yeah. get and and, and as well as as well as there being an administrative blindness to what was happening um there's also an issue around resources as well isn't there the reality is that at that time um you know as you know running a running a team a public protection team is incredibly stressful um you've you've never got enough people um the the referrals coming through the door um are so many of them across not just child abuse but across domestic abuse and uh, the the sort of sexual offences, the managing sex offenders and all that stuff that we were also responsible for. So there was always massive pressure on resources. Um, uh, the CID equally were under huge pressure um, to to manage their caseload. So so when some bright spot like me turns around and goes. There's a whole load of hidden sexual offending going on here, and I think we need to start looking at it um, properly. Um, initially, it was no one, no one was interested, and I must uh, admit, you know, know, I, and I, I've admitted in my book that that even I was skeptical in those days. You know, I get it. but you know, I get it. Um, and I know you're right, um, and that in general, police officers couldn't be asked with it because they didn't see it as important. Mm. But for me, the book again stops at the top. I worked on the major incident team. We would have one young lad who had been shot by another young lad who were both minor drug dealers. You would get a full major incident team allocated to that so-called murder. Well, this is about choices. It's about priorities. Mm. And if you do not deal with these crimes, these crimes destroy a child's life forever, you could argue, because yeah. we are picking up the pieces of lives. We had a, a lady of 83 came to us about two weeks ago in, in the foundation. She was abused as a young uh, as, a, as a, teen, a young teenager. She has carried that for her whole life. So I fully accept that resources are stretched but you know what don't go and pot somebody speaking on a mobile phone don't sit on zebra crossings and give them a ticket for, for sitting there you know yeah. reprioritize what you put your resources into and if we don't have enough police officers to do everything well i would argue that this is the number one priority in this country and it isn't just grooming gangs it is child abuse in general, we are never going to do away with sexual abuse. But if we send out the message to paedophiles, to child abusers, that we don't have the resources and it's too hard to do, we are giving them the green light to carry on doing what they're doing. And at the moment, the chances of them getting caught or prosecuted are minute. Mm. And they have got a, they've got a, um, you know, they've got permission to mm. destroy as many lives as they can. And yes, it's difficult to do. But as a country, we need to be looking at how we uh, allocate, allocate our resources. And, you know, another thing that I will throw into the mix, you know, we, we drug, drug offences, we've, we've lost that war. Mm. And yet mm. you get, you know, drug squads and you get, you know, the counter-terrorism. County units, lines, you know, kind of, you know, these massive county, county lines, lines yeah. teams, you know. Yeah, Whereas if you, I mean, you know, you and know, I've said this for years that we should be treating drugs as a as an illness. So if someone's got I, a drug, agree, drug habit, we should prescribe so them. You know, you can hear me getting all you know wound mm, yeah. up because I feel so strongly that it is not 
not doable. It is doable. But the people at the top need to get off their arses and look at the bigger picture. We are living in a different society than we were 50 years ago. And yet mm. policing has not moved on. You know, these kids that are vulnerable, you don't have to have a police officer go and speak to them to get their story. Come to a charity like ours. Use people within the community who understand trauma, who understand abuse, that the kids can relate to. Because you could re record, video record their, their testimony. You don't have to go back to them. Leave the police to do the investigation, to put the focus on the offenders. Mm. You know, I've lived this world for 10 years now. It's been my everyday life, and I know it inside out, Ian. Mm -hmm. And we need radical changes to policing. And it isn't really just with child abuse. It is mm. in general. We've got yeah. a police force that is not fit for purpose. And I'm not, you know, we've got... People going to burglaries, ticking lists. The, the chief constable who came to Greater Manchester Police Five, who actually completely tried to trash me by saying I was a woman who'd been bereaved. I, uh, I became too emotionally involved. Kind of, I'd lost the plot. He mm -hmm. he closed down the CID, the whole of the CID. It put all those detectives in neighbourhood policing teams. Now we're, we're wanting detectives back, but you've got a skills shortage. You mm -hmm. can't. You know, you need a 30-year... Yeah, no, it doesn't happen somebody. overnight, does it? It doesn't mm. happen in two minutes. So you need to look at the long term. And it's a bit like what's going on with the energy crisis. Mm. You know, this hasn't just happened. Mm. We've allowed that to happen over perhaps 20 years. Yeah, we need yeah. investment. We need people who have got a bit of common sense, a bit of ingenuity, a bit of, you know, vision yeah, to, yeah, yeah. you know, and at the moment, what I see is, is senior police closing ranks, pretending everything is hunky-dory. These are problems of the past. No, they are not. They mm. are going on today and children's lives are being destroyed every day while we do nothing. Mm. Um, I mean, I spend quite a lot of time in Turkey and I had a friend whose daughter was um, sexually abused last year. Uh, yeah, last year. You know that that case took eight months from first complaint to conviction eight months we are dealing with in with turkey, in turkey. Oh, and God. we would see you'd be turkey. lucky to get that in three years and that's exactly what i'm saying so we are meant to be this country that upholds the law and is a an example to the world i would say we are not anymore and we need mm. to get back to where we were and yeah. that needs people making brave decisions sticking their head above the parapet not looking at being knighted and you know, off out the door with a big fat pension. I want to see somebody standing in a court of law charged with gross criminal neglect, misconduct in a public office, because then I can guarantee that the next chief constable will look at that case very differently yeah, if he yeah. knows that he might be losing his pension next yeah. year. Yeah, that, that's what we need, in my opinion, so, Ian. So the fine, so the fine, yeah, and I don't disagree at all with what you've said there. Um, the... Uh, I'd like to see a few politicians in court as well for what they've Me done to, to, policing, to policing for the last 12 years. Think about the damage that Theresa May did. And yeah. of course, she's all be all yeah. around the world earning millions of pounds from speaking yeah. engagements. And yet she left yeah. a complete and utter a trail of destruction in her in mm -hmm. her wake, you know. But um, so just talk about the talking about the foundation then. So that's a that's a charity, is it? So that is that where you, where do you get your funding from? Just out of curiosity, is it from the public? So right. if, if anybody believes in in what um, we are trying to do, which is to help victims, we have an emotional support service. Um, I've now got six members of staff, but the public have got us here. Mm. You know, we I don't want to be funded by the establishment mm. because I don't. 
you know, we can't allow, I can't allow my voice to be um, edited by money. Yeah. So the public donate. We have um, a, a few um, benefactors who believe in what we are trying to do, which mm-hmm. is to to support victims, but also a victim who goes to the police now, um, who is pushed away for whatever reason, is mm-hmm. extremely um, isolated, and there is nowhere for them to go. So mm-hmm. they come to us, and um, we have ex police officers who um, run our from my legal advocacy service. So we will look at what they're saying and we'll refer it through to the police force. We are the police friend mm-hmm. because we will send it in and say, look, we believe that this case should could be investigated. It's not being recorded or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we had a case very recently. Um, it was actually an 11-year-old child and she, you know, online grooming is a big thing now. We don't mm-hmm. only support victims and survivors of grooming gangs. It's any adult survivor of any kind Mm. of sex so men and women but we had a little girl who um she had been groomed online Mm -hmm. um living with her dad and her granddad I think her mum had died and she'd been like drawn in to this uh group Mm -hmm. and had been coerced or frightened into sending rude pictures over Mm -hmm. the phone once she'd sent them obviously these men on the other end of this messaging thing then we're blackmailing her you know you've got to send this you've got to do that or we'll tell your parents we'll put them on your social media we'll tell your school friends this little girl is terrified out of her wits and this particular night uh, a dad could keep hear the phone beeping Mm. and he went in in the end and he said look you've got school in the morning I'm taking your phone he took the phone and it kept beeping and somebody tried to ring and it was one of her groomers Mm. who uh, was trying to force her to meet them um, he went to the police, told them what had gone on. Two mm. police officers turned up at their house. They were really ordinary family. The little girl's sitting in a chair. Granddad and dad here. The little girl is absolutely mortified because the dad's seen these mm. pictures. Mm-hmm. The two police officers who came in said to the dad and the granddad, before you say anything, we want to speak to your daughter. They went up to that little girl and they said, before you say anything to us, we want you to know that you are guilty of committing criminal offences by sending those pictures over your phone. Oh, my God. This little girl burst into tears. The father threw them out. They came to us then, um, and we took mm. up their case. Mm. And it has been dealt with. And behind that man on those messages was another 35 in a gang. Mm. So mm. what I'm saying is that is two lazy officers who have traumatised that child further, destroyed yeah. the trust in the police. The law might technically say that, but that's not what the law is there to do. Yeah. So yeah. all I'm yeah. saying is that yeah. in the foundation, you know, they came to us and we have helped and we're dealing with many cases. Mm. That is a big part of the work we do. And when the police force, it's all through the country. If oh, the police... gonna, gonna be, I was going to ask you that. Is it yeah, not just in the northwest of England? It's, it's everywhere. And some forces... You know, GMP, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, we're finding that the Metropolitan and the Met, they're the worst forces. But I'm not sure whether that's because I'm known for Rochdale and the Northwest. Mm. I, I don't know the reasons for that. Mm. But we, we are dealing with cases in Scotland, Cumbria, Humberside, Liverpool, Lanks, everywhere. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's 
you know, sometimes the police force will pick it up. Yeah. If we don't, we go to hydrant. Um, yeah, we've been to hydrant. And, and if we have no um, success and the victim wants to tell their story, we will facilitate that for them in, in the media. Yeah. So for me, it's about spreading the message. Yeah, it's yeah. the truth. It's sharing the truth because the authorities would far rather this is behind closed doors mm. that nobody knows what's going on. But that is the absolute antithesis of why yeah. I started yeah. this. So, but it's well, quite a scary journey sometimes, you know. I massively, um, uh, I massively take my hat off to you, Maggie. I really do. And uh, you know, you've um, you've been through so much um, personally and professionally. Um, and I can't imagine how that must have felt to have to, you know, walk away from the job that you loved doing. But, uh, you know, you're clearly doing some incredible stuff now and uh, and, and, and hopefully, um, you know, helping give justice to some of these these victims. But I do think, unfortunately, as we've said already, um, the police service is not in a good place at the moment, is it? So... Um, I'm, yeah. you know, I think you're doing an amazing job, but whether this, the wider criminal justice service is in a, is in a, is in the sort of place that it needs to be to actually follow, follow through with a lot of that stuff is probably yeah. a different, a different question, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Ian. It's, it's not just the police, the CPS, you know, are, are not fit for purpose. It, I mean, we've even got barristers on strike, haven't we? Yeah, um, yeah. And I That's don't think that list. is about yeah, I mean that, but the courts are a mess. You know, you can't get to trial and legal mm. aid. You know, if, if you're rich, you're fine. But if mm. if you know the, the girls that I've supported for those ten years, you know, they got legal aid for us to fight their case against GMP and mm. against social services. Yeah. But you know, the paperwork that they have to, the hoops that they have to jump through to get anything. Actually, lawyers are getting very rich on. Mm. You know, the girls. Or the victims will get a very small payout or compensation. The lawyers are making five times more. Mm. So even mm. though the system is simplifying and it needs to be streamlined because lots of people are making lots of money. The losers are always the victims and those who should be helped. Mm. A whole mm. industry is built up yeah. on the back yeah, of Yeah, and there's all sorts of other, yeah. you know, the social care system is is creaking, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, the education, health. Uh, it's a whole massive um, inter interlinked system, isn't it? And everyone's yeah, it struggling for resources, aren't they? Yeah, but, it's uh, depressing. Listen, um, it's probably not a bad place just to sort of, because um, I know you've got another meeting shortly, haven't you? Um, yeah. But listen, it's been brilliant chatting to you. I've really enjoyed it. I find it Pleasure. fascinating. And, and, I, I honestly give you so much credit for, for what you've done, um, you. what you're continuing to do. Um, I do follow you on, on LinkedIn and I see some of the great people that you're working with and some of the great things that you're doing. And yeah, just sort of say to them, you know, from all of us, uh, well done, keep it up. And uh, yeah, don't Thank be, you. don't be downhearted. It's, uh, it's um, incredibly important work you're doing for some of the most vulnerable children in society so yeah. uh so yeah well done you thanks Ian and if anybody you know wants to volunteer wants to do some fundraising wants to read my book um yeah and just your book again just remind me what the title is again um so <laughs> Maggie Oliver so fighting for justice survivors Maggie Oliver brilliant so you can find that Maggie on, Oliver UK on Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram Facebook page as well so 
but yeah, any help gratefully received and uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Ian. Yeah, it's been lovely, been lovely. And uh, I keep on, Shay, uh, Shay and I have been sort of communicating offline about um, some hairbrained, hairbrained idea that we had. Um, so I'll probably best not to probably best not to share that with you <laughs> right now but uh, hopefully our paths will cross at some point and I'll I'll oh, buy you uh, whatever it is that you whatever you like a drink of whether that's vodka uh, and diet coke that wasn't vodka by the way that was just diet coke <laughs> all right okay yeah it's probably a bit early for that isn't it but uh, all right my love listen uh, lovely to chat and uh, you take care and thanks a million for coming on He was often in our street We used to smile and wave at him While walking on his feet But now we never see him It really makes us frown No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town